2: whole block. was splintering and crackling. I realised this wasn't actually a small balcony fire. The whole side of the building was on fire. I was scared that there might be some sort of explosion and I was just mindful that I needed to get the boys away and get them to a safe place. I felt absolutely terrified.
3: Three years on from the Grenfell Tower Block tragedy, and you'd have thought that we were all wiser and safer by now. But today we catch up with a family whose new home nearly cost them their lives. and We ask, are building safety standards really what they should be? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, safe as houses? Why you'd better hope not.
4: have been writing about property for about
3: 10 years now. That's Martina Lees. She's the senior property writer for the Times and Sunday Times. Martina's dedicated the best part of a year now to investigating housing standards in the UK.
4: How I first got onto the cladding scandal is I went to a meeting at Parliament with leaseholders and Someone asked a question to say, how many of you have cladding problems? And lots of people put up their hands. And then I said, how many of you have other kinds of cladding problems? That's not just grain fell. Please keep your hands in the air. Just a few put them down. That was the first time I realized that this is about much more than grain fell. About a year ago, there was a fire at a block called Richmond House in South London, in a neighbourhood called Worcester Park. It happened in the early hours of the morning. The Mickelson family only woke up to the fire because their little baby was sleeping in their bed and wasn't sleeping. We were woken by Jesse around
2: 1230 he was difficult to settle, so I put him in bed with us and we fell asleep quite quickly.
3: That was Danielle Mickelson. Danielle and her husband Darren were used to being woken up at regular intervals throughout the night by the newest addition to the family, baby Jesse. though teenager Theo usually managed to sleep through. This particular evening, no-one got any rest.
2: Quite soon after this, I was woken by Darren calling me from the living room. He told me the balcony was on fire. His voice was so panicked and scared. I instantly knew that this was serious. I'd never heard him sound like that before. As we got into the communal hallway, just outside our front door, I realised the fire was more serious than I'd first thought. It was hazy. The whole place just smelt of burning. A neighbour was running up and down the hallway, knocking on doors, telling people to get out. We ran down the stairs to the ground floor and out of the building. Theo was wearing a t shirt and his underpants, and Jesse was in his pyjamas and sleeping bag. We could not believe our eyes. Thick black smoke was pouring out of every window and the whole balcony, and those balconies around were up in flames. We took the children and moved a little bit further away so that we were standing in a position that we could see the whole backside of the block. The fire was spreading rapidly. We could already see that our lounge and our kitchen, which was open plan, was on fire. The place was manic with people on the streets, fire engines, ambulances, and police arriving in numbers. Fire
3: crews were called at 0127 this morning to report of a fire in a flat in Sherbrooke Way, West Park. On arrival, crews were faced with a well-developed and intense fire which resulted in the incident being quickly escalated for additional fire engines.
2: There was nothing we could do but just watch as the fire took over the whole side of our building. It happened so quickly and we just could not believe what we were seeing. If Jesse hadn't have been awake and in our bed, would we have woken up? There was just a stream of what-ifs and also a deep sadness at realising nothing in our flat would be salvageable We'd lost everything, including our car that was parked in the basement garage. Everything we owned was gone. That Sunday evening before the fire, I'd bathed Jessie and removed my wedding rings. They were gone. In all the panic around us, the four of us stood in our pyjamas speechless, just watching the building burn. I felt totally useless standing there. We'd lost everything. But worse than that was that my children were having to witness and go through this. Theo was 12 years of age. Everything he'd ever owned was in his bedroom, everything from his childhood. And now he was stood beside me shivering with nothing on his feet and there was nothing I could do.
4: The whole building burnt down very, very quickly. Even though the fire grade arrived there within nine minutes, the entire building was destroyed. And, yeah, it was just very traumatic. Twenty-three families lost their homes.
3: So what kind of building was it?
4: It's a block of flats, 23 flats, four storeys. It had cladding on it, but the cladding was not combustible. The reason why the fire spread so fast is because of the way the walls were built. That was the findings of a report that has just come out. What was missing inside the walls, there were no cavity barriers, which are meant to stop the fire spreading inside the gap in the walls. That's why when you look at photos of the aftermath, it's literally as if this giant hand just peeled off the walls and the roof.
3: When, when was this block built?
4: Not very long ago, only a few years ago, by Barclay Homes, which is one of the big developers in this country.
3: So this family is in a four-storey modern block of flats. They're woken up by a fire in the middle of the night that's caused by a failure to put the kind of uh, barriers that there should have been in their walls. Is that broadly right?
4: Yes. It shows that the problems with building safety we have in this country is not just cladding. It's not just the insulation that goes behind the cladding. It's not just flammable materials. It's the very way in which we've been building um, homes and flats specifically The rules need to have fire stopping and cavity barriers and other measures to stop fire spreading. But very often they don't.
3: So what happened in the case of the Mickelsons was that the fire spread much more quickly than it should have done. Correct. The whole block was consumed?
4: It was. The fire brigade got there nine minutes after the first calls and I couldn't save it. It is a miracle that no one died. And
3: They'd had no reason to suspect that there was any problem with the building at all. Did they discover how the fire started?
4: They still don't know how it started. They only know that it spread so fast. And you're right, they had no reason to believe that the building was dangerous. They only discovered that once there was a fire. The nature of cavity barriers is that it's inside the wall and you can't see them and you can't see if they're not there.
3: So is it fair to say that... It is a building regulation that there should be these cavity barriers in those walls.
4: Well, there is a building regulation saying there should be cavity barriers in those walls. This is quite a basic one, and it was enforced at the time of construction, but they weren't there, not sufficiently and not correctly installed. The report found that it was a design fault.
2: A few weeks after the fire, some residents were allowed the opportunity to go into the flats if they were accessible. And half of it had collapsed and fallen through to the flat underneath us and the flat above had fallen into ours. And there was part of our flat that you could get into. So Darren um, was able to go inside. We were desperate to salvage something, anything. I could not believe it. He was able to access our main bathroom, which was close to the entrance of our flat. he found my wedding rings and they were still there on the side of the bath. It meant the world to me to have something so special and so sentimental from my life before this horrible disaster and I've not taken them off again since and I don't think I will. It's actually amazing how they survived when nothing else did.
3: Has there been an investigation?
2: The freeholder
4: of the building had commissioned a forensic architect to investigate why the fire spread so quickly. And there is a court case ongoing now in which the residents are suing for compensation from the developers for the losses they've suffered.
3: Let's go back for a moment to Grenfell, which you could argue epitomises in its worst form some of this. Where were you when it happened?
4: I was asleep in my bed and like the rest of the country, I woke up and was just shocked at that disaster. I remember driving past the tower on the way into London and it stood there like a ghostly shell. It's such a scandal that something like that could happen in a country like this. But we've learned since then that it's about much more than that tower, it's the system. One expert I spoke to said to me, you drive around... Parts of London, and I guess a lot of the country, there's just flats everywhere. And as far as he's concerned, very few of them comply to the rules now.
3: Really? You looked at Grenfell with the eyes of a property journalist. Uh, So, what were the questions you began asking yourself?
4: I wondered how many more are there like this. Surely, if the rules allowed that to go up there, there must be more. And now we know there are many more. And then I started wondering, I mean, what are the implications for the rest of the market? Does that say that any flat is unsalable, And it is, pretty
3: much. S- so you discovered that there were lots of other flats which had cladding similar to or analogous to what they had at Grenfell.
4: Yes. Last year, I did an investigation for the Sunday Times. I got hold of planning data of all blocks of flats that were built with any kind of cladding going back to 2013. And that gave us a list of 200,000 flats with cladding on them. In 90% of cases where there's cladding, the insulation behind it is flammable. So it meant that, you know, that number of flats were at risk. That was the first proper figures that we found on how big the problem is. Only six years of buildings and this stuff has gone up on blocks long before that. So up until now, there's only been estimates of really how big the problem is. The figures that we now have with this latest report is that almost 3,000 developments had registered with the government's £1 billion fund to fix high-rise blocks, and that's only blocks above 18 metres with stuff other than on Grenfell. So it excludes the low-rise blocks that are, there are many, 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 many more times that number. We know from the fires that have happened in low-rise blocks that they can be dangerous too. 3,000 developments, so that translates into an estimated 186,000 flats that we now know have some proofs that they are dangerous
3: that's really interesting so it uncovered to you that there were all kinds of similar problems or problems not uh, to do with cladding can you give some specific examples of the other problems
4: there are other kinds of flammable materials one type is called high pressure laminate hpl for short that is almost as flammable as the kind of cladding on grenfell there's also timber cladding. The HPL was on a block in Bolton in Manchester that went up in flames within a few minutes. And timber was on a block in East London. The same thing had happened. Both of those blocks were mid-rise. They were under 18 metres, which is the threshold where the government cut off any help from funding or even policy to ban these bad stuff on, on buildings now. So it just showed that... The problem is huge. We still don't know the true scale of it. It's only going to get bigger.
0: So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How it to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
3: People who don't live under these circumstances haven't had these problems... Why, even if you don't have a fire, this can badly affect you?
4: Lenders have realised that we can't trust the building regulations anymore to show that something is safe. It's quite logical. A bank doesn't want to lend against something if it's at risk. They want a new kind of proof, and that's called an external wall system report. EWS 1 for short. If you live in a modern flat, even if it's just three storeys in a brick building you're very likely to be asked for that form to prove that your building is safe. If you can't produce it, then you can't get a mortgage or your buyer can't get a mortgage. And that means that at least 3.6 million people are now stuck, unable to move and unable to sell and unable to get a new mortgage.
3: You're kidding, 3.6 million?
4: Yes, that's how many people live in modern flats built in blocks or three or more stories since about 1945. Any of those could be asked for that certificate if you go to a bank now.
3: Wow, that, that, that's amazing. So you met people who literally can't sell their flats because they can't get the certificate.
4: There's one family in East London, it's a nurse and a doctor and they have a baby and a toddler and they are stuck in a one-bedroom shared ownership flat which they can't sell because the building doesn't have this EWS1 They also own another one-bedroom shared ownership flat that the wife had bought before they got married, and they can also not sell that for the same reason. The building might be safe, but because they can't prove that it is safe, they're stuck.
3: So there are a lot of people in this position. Presumably, as well as people who can't sell their flats, there are people who can't buy those flats because those certificates aren't forthcoming.
4: It's happening increasingly that buyers of... Any flat, pretty much, will go quite far in the transaction. And then they realize, oh, Uh, and then they ask them for this certificate and they find out that they can't get it. So the transaction falls through. So you lose your survey fees and your legal fees. The whole property chain then collapses. You might think that you live in a house and this doesn't affect you. But if you're selling your house and your buyer is in a chain that starts with someone in a flat, you could very well lose your whole chain because of this.
3: Why are EWS1s not being granted? Are they not being granted because they're too difficult to get, or are they not being granted because actually the buildings are regarded as unsafe?
4: There are only 291 fire engineers who can do the assessments. They are very detailed. It involves cutting holes in the buildings and then doing tests on bits of cladding and insulation to see what it really is. What also makes it complicated is the leasehold system in this country. You might have bought your flat, you don't own the building, so you are not allowed to go and cut holes in it. You have to get the freeholder to do that. And all of that takes time. This is where the really big problem comes in. So far, in nine in 10 buildings where they've done these investigations, they have failed the checks. That means you have to wait until whatever they found that's wrong gets fixed. And only then you can get a clear certificate and only then you'd be able to sell or get your mortgage. Experts say five to ten years. Peabody Housing Association has told some of their residents that it could take as long as a decade.
3: This is an absolutely extraordinary story, something that affects millions of people, who have nearly no chance of getting any form of redress because the process firstly takes so long and secondly, because most of their buildings will fail this test. Why are their buildings failing the test?
4: It is the result of decades of regulatory failure. A, the rules went right. They just didn't require the right materials. B, a lack of oversight One expert told me, you know, building regulation checks mean that an inspector might visit a site twice a year. So they don't actually look at what goes on. So your sign off doesn't mean much. And thirdly, there's a culture of cutting corners, building fast, building cheap in the construction industry that was highlighted in Dame Judith Hackett's report.
2: In some respects, the diagnosis of the problem was the easiest part of this review. My job was largely about listening, listening to the fire service, listening to residents in high-rise buildings and others who were part of the industry, all of whom were saying to me, this system is broken.
3: That was indeed Dame Judith Hackett. She was responsible for heading up an independent review of building regulations and fire safety, Her final report made over 50 recommendations to government on how to deliver a more robust regulatory system for the future.
4: And I think it's also to do with the values of land. Uh, Land values have have increased over time. So in the last 20 years, if you look at a property price, now 70% of that price is to do with the land value underneath it, not the structure on top of it. 20 years ago, it was half, half. That puts pressure on house builders to cut corners, and they've increasingly been doing that.
3: Why does the alteration in the balance between the land value and the property price mean that they do that?
4: If you have to pay more money to buy the land, you can still only sell the flat for what someone will pay for it. It means you have less money to build, so therefore you have to try and build even more cheaply, and faster than you could have done otherwise.
3: Ah, so you st- can't save the money on the value of the land. You can only save the money and therefore make your profit on the cost of the building.
4: In this country, we've become really, really good at building cheaply. The, the quality of the homes we built are some of the cheapest in Europe.
3: Sorry, uh, let's, let's explore that one because that's really interesting. Our house building is cheaper than it is in most of the rest of Europe.
4: That's also why... We have some of the draftiest um, homes in Europe. It's to do with our planning system and the way that limits land and makes it uncertain whether you're going to be able to build something. And it pushes up the costs. But it's not just that they're trying to save money. There is a culture of just shoddy building work and that being acceptable and not being checked properly.
2: It's left every avenue open, in my view, for the industry to uh, race to the bottom, to get away with whatever they think they can get away with and to do things as cheaply as possible. And that's what we have to change.
3: That's really not very comforting. That really quite takes my breath away. I hadn't realised. What you're saying is we systematically build more shoddily than they do on the continent, say.
4: The problem is now the government keeps saying we need to build, build, build more homes. But if we don't resolve this culture, we are just going to build more bad homes. Um, And we should fix the ones we've got before we start building faster and more cheaply.
3: Is it because our companies care less about the homes they build than companies elsewhere? Or is it because the incentives are wrong?
4: In countries like Germany, for example, about half of the homes that are built get built for individuals through custom build and self-build. So the quality of the homes are much better because the people who will be living in them have much more of an involvement. Here it's very different. We have a handful of companies that build two-thirds of the homes in this country, and they are incentivized to profit, um, which is logical, but when you have a whole system that works like that, it will over time, increasingly incentivizes the wrong behaviour. And we are reaping the fruit of that now.
3: We really are. I had absolutely no idea. Now, I presume that since Grenfell, a significant proportion of those have been fixed, haven't they?
4: Not nearly enough. There were about 30,000 flats with the Grenfell ACM cladding in the beginning. And now we still have 20,000 of them that still have those panels on them. Many of them are in the process of being remediated, but there are still blocks that there are no plans to fix them. The government has been heavily criticised for being so slow to sort it out.
3: Now, you told us earlier about the EWS1 certificate. I imagine that no building that has that cladding can get an EWS1 certificate by definition.
4: You are right. If... You have greenfall cladding on. You'll definitely, well, you can get a certificate, but it will say it needs work. And if it says that, you can't, um, you can't get a mortgage. These are few buildings that have greenfall cladding where people have been able to start selling and and you know getting on with their lives again. But it's quite complicated and technical to get to that
3: point. You and I both live in Victorian houses, but let's say we wanted to buy a new house or a new flat. What would you insist upon if you were going to look at it?
4: I wouldn't buy any flat in a modern building. Definitely not if it's any higher than three storeys, because you will probably get all caught up in this issue and it's not going to be resolved for a long time. This doesn't mean that all buildings are Grenfell towers about to go up. There's a very big difference between Grenfell and A Block with a little bit of planning on the top floor. But the problem is the banks treat them all the same at the moment.
3: Given what you said, if you were buying new, would you be worried that the likelihood was that your new building was going to be shoddily built?
4: I've investigated new-built homes as well. I was really shocked. There is a systemic culture of building badly and then bullying buyers who complain. I wouldn't touch a new-built with a barge ball, to be honest, (laughs) even if it's a house.
3: (laughs) Okay. What do you think we need to change in order for housing to be safe in terms of building and in terms of regulation?
4: I think the government can learn some lessons from the Australian state of Victoria, which has had a cladding crisis as well. No-one has died there, and they've been a lot more proactive at handling In it. Melbourne,
3: now, the Victorian government today has announced it'll spend hundreds of millions of dollars bankrolling works to remove combustible cladding from buildings right across Melbourne. There are $300 million that will be provided by uh, the Victorian government. Uh, there is then a request for the Commonwealth, as recommended by the Cladding Task Force.
4: We need to properly audit all buildings and the government should take control of that process. At the moment they are relying on councils to ask block managers for what they found. We need to treat those buildings in accordance with their risk and deal with the most dangerous ones first to fix them so that people living in low-risk blocks can also know that they can move um, and can get a mortgage. So yeah, people can get on with their lives. The funding from the government should be enlarged in scale and in scope. At the moment, there's £1.6 billion in funding and it doesn't cover low-rise blocks. It doesn't mean that the taxpayer necessarily has to pay for all of it. Some of it could be funded from levies, from developers. There could be some loans that could be paid off over time through council tax, for example. But we need more funding. And if lenders know there's funding, they'll also be more inclined to lend.
3: As you might expect, the Mickelsons are not the only case of families suffering that Martina has come across.
4: The human impact is staggering. It's even worse than the financial impact. It's so much more than that. People are unable to get married, they are unable able to afford more children, they are unable to get IVF and by the time this is resolved they'll be so old that they can't have children anymore. There are people who can't get divorced, there are people who can't retire, there are people who've gone back to work out of retirement to supply teaching because they are worried about these huge bills coming their way. What really makes me angry is that the only people that are innocent in this are the people who live in these homes and they are the ones being made to pay for it, not just in their money, but in their lives. The developers and the building controllers and the designers and the government who have made the rules to allow all of this to go on, they are not taking nearly as much responsibility for this as the leaseholders caught up in it.
3: Do you know, during most of my journalistic life, we've been talking about moving and we thought we were in the era of the consumer and consumer protection. What your story seems to suggest is that the last person who gets protected in this instance is the consumer.
4: If you buy a flat or a house for that matter, you have fewer consumer rights than if you bought a toaster. You can't give it back. You can't get them to fix it. And you are caught up in it and you have to live in your broken toaster.
3: Let's go back to the Mickelsons. What, what's happened to the Mickelsons?
4: They are still living in temporary accommodation. They still haven't been able to move back into their home. In fact, Barclay Homes, who built those flats in the first instance, have had planning permission to now rebuild them. And they are scared to move back in because how can they trust them now?
2: The events of that night are just so traumatic. It's hard to even imagine being able to go back, but we just loved living there. We've got such happy memories, but it does feel tainted now, especially knowing how unsafe the building was all the time we lived there. The fire's changed a lot for me. I'm scared that something will happen and we won't be as lucky next time living in an unsafe building really opens your eyes to how many other buildings are unsafe, how many residents are going through a similar thing, how many fires there have been before and how many there will be. It's a scary prospect. We just don't know what the future holds. To think about going back to a flat is just not worth the risk and I just can't put my children in danger again.
0: You've
3: been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, senior property writer for The Times and The Sunday Times, Martina Lees. A special thanks goes to Daniel Mickelson and her family. If you subscribe to The Times online, you can read more of Martina's work on the property market. Read thetimes.co.uk slash subscribe to find out more. The producer today was Oliver Adamson. The executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Carla Patella. Music is by Breakmaster Cylinder and Ketzer. And if you get a chance, please do leave us a review and let us know what you think of the podcast. You can subscribe now to never miss an episode. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and the Times Radio app. See you soon.